Get your Bibles out and let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. A few years ago, a man sat down in a crowded subway station in Washington, D.C. and began playing the violin. He chose to begin right around rush hour because he was hoping that he would catch as many people as possible on their way home from work. And during this time, he played six Bach pieces, which totaled about 45 minutes worth of playing. And yet, in that 45 minutes, at the peak of rush hour, even though over a thousand people walked by him, only six stopped and paid attention. And of those six, over half of them were kids. He might as well have been invisible, playing the air violin. No one applauded, no one thanked him, no one even acted like they noticed his presence. And this story is, is really amazing to me because that man, that random dude playing the violin, just so happened to be a guy named Joshua Bell. And Joshua Bell is a phenomenal violinist. He's one of the greatest musicians in the world. He had just played one of the most intricate pieces ever written on the violin on a violin that cost $3.5 million. Two nights before, he sold out a really famous theater in Boston where tickets averaged $100. And yet he's playing in the subway in what should have been the most memorable and exhilarating and awe-inspiring experience of these people's lives wasn't even noticed. They totally missed it. See, it's possible to be in the presence of greatness. It's possible to be in, in close proximity to beauty and even participate in something incredible and at the same time totally miss it. Feel no sense of awe whatsoever. Yet listen to this warning from Sir Albert Einstein. I don't know if he's actually a knight, but I call him Sir. He who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. I wonder how many of our eyes have been closed to the beauty and the glory of Christ's church. How many millions of Christians around the world maybe have been hurt by the church or have experienced drama in the church and have withdrawn from it or uh, maybe more applicable for you today, crawled out of bed early this morning, earlier than you wanted to crawl out of bed on a Sunday. Let's just be honest. You wiped the sleep from your eyes and, and you got ready in your Sunday best just to kind of go through motions and, and yawn and fidget and struggle and sometimes sleep through this thing that we call church, this thing that really is supposed to be the most glorious and beautiful and awe-inspiring gathering in the history of the world. How many of us have been in the presence of glory, in close proximity to beauty, and even um, participated in this incredible institution or organism or invention of God and totally missed it? Now, my burden for you as your pastor is that you wouldn't live as if you were dead with your eyes closed to the weight and the significance and the glory and beauty behind what we're doing here today and every Sunday as we gather together as God's people, his church. Now, I know we have talked a lot about the church in the past few weeks. 
If you're joining us for the first time, again, welcome. We've been in the letter to the Ephesians since September, which is all about God's master plan to unite and sum up all things in heaven and earth and his son. And if you missed that week when we talked about that, his, his master plan, or maybe you, you accidentally slept through it or that part of the sermon, um, I want to look at it again because I want to show you Paul's kind of train of thought from chapter 1 to where we are now in chapter 3. So look again at chapter 1, verse 9, which is the main point or thesis of this whole letter. He says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This is the plan, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In other words, he's going to bring to completion everything in heaven, which is referring to angels and demons and the cosmos and then everything on earth, which is referring to humanity and the animal kingdom and all of creation. And he's going to restore and reconcile and redeem everything that was broken and ruined at the curse. Everything that sin and death has marred, he is going to restore. That's his plan for the world. But while chapter 1 announces God's amazing plan to reconcile, restore, and redeem, and, and bring all things to completion in his son, chapter 2 shows us how it's all going to play out. First, in the lives of individuals. You remember, chapter 2 starts out with some really depressing news. We're all dead in transgressions and sins. But now, because of his great love and mercy, we are made alive in Christ Jesus. And we are adopted as sons and daughters into his family. And now we have all of the rights and privileges that follow. For example, where there was once condemnation, now there is justification. We have been made righteous. Where there was once abandonment and sin, now there is acceptance as holy ones in Christ Jesus. Even though we sin every single day, we are accepted as holy because of Christ where there was once destitution, now there is hope. Where there was once death, now there is life. And all because Jesus hung in our place on the cross. Took everything that we deserved on himself. Wrath, punishment, condemnation, and death. So that he could take everything that he deserved. Honor, glory, praise, acceptance, and sonship. And give it to us. So Paul is saying, this is how God's plan is going to be enacted in the world. He's going to send his son to die on a cross and reconcile mankind to God. His plan is working. But what we saw just a couple of weeks ago is that the cross didn't just reconcile men to God. The cross reconciled men to men, us to each other. In other words, phase one was this vertical reconciliation, which now manifests itself in phase two, which is a horizontal reconciliation. We now have peace where there was once war and conflict and love where there was once hatred and all of this. Jews and Gentiles who were mortal enemies and who despised each other with every ounce of their being are now made into a new race a new humanity, a new family. And all the racism and tribalism and prejudice that they'd carried with them from birth were replaced with peace and unity and love. 
Remember we talked about this two weeks ago. If you weren't here, Jesus didn't just die for humanity. Jesus died to create a new humanity. And so the church is this new humanity. We are the people of God. And it is actually the proof that his plan is working and that the cross was successful. But Paul isn't done talking about the church. He's building this argument and he's building this thesis and he's painting this picture. And now the rest of the letter is going to be about this new family and how we prove that God's plan is working. Yes, we're the family of God. Yes, we're now the dwelling place of his spirit, which is mind-blowing. Yes, we are now his body and Christ is our head, which is amazing. But Paul wants us to see something even more astounding than all of that. And I'll be totally honest with you. When I, when I found this like a few years ago, I don't even remember when it was, it blew my mind. This is the truth, that the church is the highest manifestation of God's glory in the world today. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 10. We're picking up right where we left off last week, 310, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Just kind of pause there and remember God's plan is to unite all things in heaven, including the rulers and authorities, and he's going to place them underneath the feet of his son. You remember that? So it's through the church that he's revealing his wisdom to these rulers and authorities. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Now skip to verse 20. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Listen to this. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is what I believe many Christians have their eyes shut to. This is what I want to help you see today. Wake you up to maybe for the first time that the church, the assembly of God's redeemed people, is the highest manifestation of his handiwork in the world. Why is the church the highest manifestation of his handiwork. Why are we, why is this gathering the chief and primary witness to the glory of God in the world, you might ask? It's because the church is the proof that his eternal purpose has been realized and it has been accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gathering of God's people is the proof that the cross was not in vain, that it was effective Look back at verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to his eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus. And this is the truth that just blew my mind several years ago when I came to understand it for the first time. What Paul is saying here is that the rulers and authorities, which is just another way of talking about angels. The angels who live in the very presence of God, in the company of his glory, 
who have seen him firsthand and who are currently in his presence praising him and adoring him and worshiping him right now actually come to know something about God that they would have never known before. And they come to know it through the church. That should blow your mind. They had seen the, the essence of God's wisdom, but in the church, they're finally able to see it in full bloom. How does the church do that? What in the world is Paul talking about? How does the gathering of God's people teach angels something that they could have never known about God without us? The answer is found in this little word that Paul uses to describe God's wisdom. It's the word manifold. If you've got your Bible with you, circle it, star it, whatever. It's a really important word for us to understand because it shows us why the church is so unique and so remarkable in the world. It carries this idea that something is many-sided or something is diverse or very literally something is multicolored. It's actually the same word used in Genesis to describe Joseph's coat. It's multicolored. It was manifold. It was diverse. It's the same word used here about God's wisdom. And what I want you to see today is that the church is the medium through which the diverse, many-sided, multicolored wisdom, is, wisdom of God is revealed. Because it's here that those who were once universally fallen and diametrically opposed to one another have been brought together as one redeemed and unified body through Jesus Christ. So in other words, guys, you think about like a prism. If you remember your, your science days, you were in science class and the teacher, you know, had the, the light, you know, shining through and you could see the light and you could see its whiteness. But then when you put a prism in front of the light, what happened to the light? The light was always there, but now it started shooting through this prism in all kinds of different colors and it changed the perspective of the light. And essentially, that's what the church is. You could always see God's white light shining through in essence and his wisdom. And then God just placed the church like a prism right in front of it. So now it's seen as diverse and multicolored and many-sided. And it's beautiful. I love how Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. He said, what a conception of the Christian church. Without this, the angels could see the light. They could see the wisdom in general, but not in its amazing variety. It is through the church as a medium that the angels have received this new conception of the transcendent glory of the wisdom of God. I want you to think of the most stunning and amazing and, and beautiful thing that you have ever seen. Maybe you hiked up some mountains before the sun rose, and, and you saw it rise on the peaks of those, of those distant hills, and it was, it was amazing. It was glorious. Maybe you got in a boat, like I did one time, and, and you rocketed into the mist of the Niagara Falls, 
which is a thing. If you go to Niagara Falls, don't do the Maid in the Mist. It kind of slugs along. Do the rocket boat tour. It's incredible. Best thing I've ever done in my life. And, and just marvel at the immensity of those falls. I think for me, one of the most wonderful things I've ever seen is the sun setting over the Grand Canyon. Man, words cannot describe that. It's incredible. We get on planes, man. We, we spend thousands of dollars to go see these incredible things like the Swiss Alps and waterfalls and canyons. And, and when we see them, we say things like, man, that was amazing. That was beautiful. That was breathtaking. That was the most wonderful thing I have ever seen, and rightfully so, because those things are amazing. They are the handiwork of God. But what the Apostle Paul wants us to see, what I really hope you see today is that all of those things and all of their beauty and splendor pale in comparison to the church to gathered believers and congregations, members one to another, despite of all of their differences, despite all of their sin, despite all of their classism and racism and prejudices and partisanship and personality differences and preferences and all of those things that they carried into it, they're gathered together as one. Paul says, that is the highest manifestation of the glory of God. Not the Grand Canyon, not the Niagara Falls. This. Most amazing phenomenon in the whole world. It's so amazing and it's so compelling that the angels and all of the celestial beings are currently peering down into our gathering and they're saying, wow, do you see what God did? How did he do that? I can't believe it. I didn't see that coming. Wow, God, you are wise. The manifold wisdom of creator God is astounding. Can you imagine what it would look like if we saw the church like that? If we saw the church like the angels see the church. How would that impact our perspective and our behavior and what we're doing here today, week after week, as brothers and sisters in, in this new family? Well, the rest of the letter to the Ephesians basically spells out what this looks like, and we're going to look at it in detail. I love how he starts it out. Chapters 1 through 3 are basically like, here's the theological vision for this thing that God is doing. And then chapters 4 through 6 are like, this is how we live in it. This is how it plays out in our daily lives. I just want to show you three implications today. We're going to get into a lot more detail in the weeks to come, but here are three implications that flow out of this amazing new vision of the church. First, it is impossible to fulfill our calling as Christians outside of the local church. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, which is, just picking up right where Paul is leaving off. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We've just been told what that calling is, right? We're now participants in a new body and, and a new family, a new humanity, a new temple, so that now we don't just represent ourselves, we represent 
the God who dwells in us. Now, if you've been in church for a while, you know that mankind was created to bring glory to God or to make God look as good as he actually is. That's all that means. We always say, well, why are you here? To glorify God. What does that mean? I have no idea. Uh, To glorify God means that you are going to make God look as good as he actually is in your life. So the Westminster Catechism puts it like this. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever because we show him to be as good as he actually is when we enjoy him more than everything else. That's what it means to glorify God. His glory is absolutely connected to our joy. That's another sermon. But when we think about fulfilling this purpose or living out that calling, um, most of the time we think about doing it individualistically on our own. Okay, I, I got to love God with my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Okay, I've got to, I got to love my neighbor as myself. Okay, I got to share the gospel with the lost in my life. Okay, I'm growing up in Christ. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And all of those things are good, and all of those things are important. In fact, 1 Corinthians uh, six twenty says that we have the ability to glorify God in our own bodies, and so we should as individuals. But get this. It's the manifold wisdom of God is revealed in and through the church. We actually fail to glorify him, and effectively, we miss our calling if we're not connected to and involved in his church. I was at my son's basketball game yesterday. My son is five. If you've never been to a five-year-old basketball game, you are missing out. (laughs) It is uh, wildly entertaining. Uh, They all have color-coded sweatbands that they wear on their wrists. Uh, they're supposed to guard the person with their matching color. It's supposedly supposed to get them from being in a mob, though it doesn't work at all, and no one guards the person they're supposed to guard. Um, the first game, Nicholas literally just stood in the middle of the court and, and played with his wristband for almost the entire first quarter. He just stood there. His first soccer game, he scored six goals. I was like so proud. His first basketball game, he learned the ins and outs of that wristband. Like making all of us, Instagramming that. Look at my son. He he got that wristband. (laughs) So proud. Um, Kids don't know how to dribble yet when they're five. And so they they will literally pick the ball up. They will hold it like a football, and they will just weave in and out of the other team like they're playing tag. And so the gym is full of this echoing, resounding from coaches and refs and parents, dribble the ball. It's like all we're yelling the whole game. It's really fun. Every week, though, every single week, without fail, it happens that someone will grab the ball, and he will turn And he will go the wrong way, or she will go the wrong way, and try to score on his or her own basket. Usually they miss because they're five and they stink. (laughs) But sometimes they make it, and they're cheering, and they're pumped, and they're looking over at mom and dad like, where's my applause? Where are the cheers? I just made a basket. We're all like, no, no, no. And all you could do is laugh. Not only did you not help your team, you hurt your team. And if we were keeping score, it'd be two points in the negative, right? Guys, this is effectively what it looks like to try to glorify God and live out our calling as Christians apart from the local church. 
It's not only that we're not doing the best thing. It's not only that we're not doing a good thing or even a neutral thing. We're actually doing a harmful thing. We're scoring points for the wrong team. When we try to live out this Christian life apart from God's body and his people. This is why when people ask me, Ben, why can't I just go to my young pros Bible study or why can't I just hit up a coffee shop with my Bible and a warm cup of joe? Or when I was a college pastor, why can't I just go to crew or RUF or FCA? Or why, why can't I just watch church on TV or, or YouTube or, or listen to a podcast? And I know that there's a tendency to think like, man, I could, I could get the sermon and I could get the message and I can get the worship without all the drama, without all the sin, without all the hypocrites, without all the gossip, without all of the baggage and the hurt that comes from people. And I always answer, guys, it's because those things aren't the church. Young Pros Bible Studies and Campus Ministries are awesome, and they are really helpful. We actually help, we partner with FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes at Queens. We got some of them here. Love FCA, but FCA is not a replacement for the local church, and it's an addition to it. I don't think any, I don't think any of the angels are looking into FCA and, and looking at all of those educated and talented and athletic and good-looking students and wondering, how did God get all of those people in the same room? No. Like, it makes sense, right? Most of them are, are just looking for friends. Some of them are looking for spouses, which is not a bad thing at all. But, like, there's a reason that they're there. No one's saying, how did he do that? YouTube and Spotify are incredible. Love it. You can literally listen to the best preachers in the world, and you can listen to the best praise music in the entire world, anything you want. And, and don't get me wrong, I want you to do that. I want you to listen to Piper and Keller and Chandler and Greer and Keller, because they're going to give you the gospel every single time in unique and creative ways, and, and it's going to be awesome. But the angels aren't looking down from the throne room of heaven into your bedroom as John Piper's bringing the word and Chris Tomlin and Passion Band are bringing the worship and thinking, wow, how in the world did God get them to do that? No way in heaven is that conversation happening, right? But you see, when they look at this, at the local assembly of God's people, and they see 80-year-olds encouraging 18-year-olds, and they see people of all colors loving and serving one another. And they see the rich and the poor and men and women and couples and singles and Arabs and Americans and people who would otherwise have absolutely nothing in common together as one gathered around the preaching of the word. Joined together in song and in prayer, worshiping the only one who transcends everything else, they say, that is incredible. They're, they're blown away by it. They're currently worshiping God right now because of it. Wow, God, look at what you have done. 
You are so wise. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed so that he might receive glory in the church. If we want to live out our calling as God's people, we have to be connected to God's people. That's the first implication. The second implication of this new and glorious vision of the church is that the church is not about you or me. It is about unity. Ephesians 4, 2 through 3, walk in a manner worthy of your calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This point is so important for you and I to grasp today because naturally we are convinced of the exact opposite. Remember the beginning of chapter 2, Paul, Paul tells us, he just lays it out for us. Uh, we were lost in our sin, our hearts were turned inward, which means all we could do was think about ourselves. So much so that even our good works and our charity and our religiosity was done so that we could feel happy or we could feel good about ourselves, or so that we could look respectable to our peers or our parents. We're always thinking about ourselves. And not only is this our natural condition, but it's reinforced by a society that's constantly promoting and, and driven by narcissism and consumerism and instant gratification. We've, we've grown used to brands and businesses catering to our needs and our preferences, for example, we've got a dozen different grocery stores to choose from that, that kind of fit us. I live above a Whole Foods. It's a dangerous thing, right? But it, it, there's a certain type of person and personality and bent that chooses to shop at Whole Foods. It's different from Aldi. And once you finally get into that grocery store, there are different varieties and all different kinds of food and drink. And so if you're getting milk, man, you can get milk with some fat in it or you can get milk with, with a lot of fat in it, which is way better. Or you can get that, that white colored water called skim milk. Or you could get milk made out of almonds or, or coconuts or soy, whatever suits you, right? You make the decision. Or, or if you want to buy clothes, there are literally thousands of different places for you to shop for your clothing online and around the corner that, that match your personality and your desires and your whims so that you can be gratified. If you have something that you don't like or that you're bored of, you can just throw it on Marketplace, Craigslist. You get rid of that trash and find something new. So we as believers have subconsciously bought this false narrative that we live in a me-centered world. You can see this vividly on full display in the way that we move around from and choose our churches. We go from church to church as if they were department stores, don't we? Shopping for just the right preacher. Sorry. Just the right band. Just the right worship style or coffee options or ambiance or vibe or whatever. And so our relationship to the church actually mirrors our relationship to something like Macy's. What do you do when you go into Macy's? 
If I go into Macy's looking for a certain color or style shirt, which I never do. Who does that anymore? Um, Amazon, right? Um, or, but if I go into Macy's and I'm looking for a certain color, a certain style, and they don't have it, what do I do? I just walk out and I go across the hall to Belk. But again, nobody does this anymore. But I'll find it there. Why is that? The reason I can do that without any sense of guilt whatsoever is because I have no commitment or loyalty to any particular store. My commitment and loyalty is to myself and my desire to find that shirt that I'm looking for. I got to gratify that need, right? And how many believers have this kind of attitude when it comes to church? Oftentimes, we're nothing more than shoppers chasing the deal of the moment. So as one author put it, our churches are full of high expectation, low commitment attenders. But what you and I need to understand more than anything, or what we actually need more than anything, is not a church that meets all of our needs. It's not even a church that matches all of our preferences, What you and I need more than anything is a vision of the only person in the universe who transcends all of our needs and who transcends all of our preferences. And we get a vision of that God who transcends us. That's what we need. Because guys, we are not in a me-centered universe. He is the sun and all orbits around him. Then and only then will we be able to walk in humility and patience and love. Then and only then will we be able to lay down our desires for the sake of others. Give up our preferences for the sake of the body. Give up our own agenda for the sake of unity. We have to have a new vision of him. And guys, this is so important because it is by our unity in the church that we are preaching to the angels the power and wisdom and glory of the God who made us and redeemed us and adopted us into his family. It's by our unity. Let me just encourage you here today because I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. Let me encourage you. We have one of the most incredible opportunities in the world just because this church is is unique in doing what I'm talking about. We are young and at the same time, we are seasoned. Man, we launched in September But this building's been here for seven years, and the church we adopted had been here for 96. We're white collar and we're blue collar. Just look around. There's a lot of differences here. We're traditional and liturgical, and at the same time, we're modern and contemporary. We're not edgy, we're not cool. We're both, we're weird. We're black and white and Asian and African and Canadian even and Latino and Hispanic. But even more than that, we are a brand new church plant, guys, which means we have limited resources. We have like two programs, okay? And it's not because we don't want an awesome youth group. And it's not because we don't want an awesome women's ministry and men's ministry. We just don't have the leaders. 
There's nothing flashy or cool or trendy about what we are doing here at Life Church. And so out of the thousand churches that you could choose in the city of churches, we probably have the least amount of services to provide consumers. But what I want you to understand today, I'm going to encourage you with, that is actually a good thing for you. It's a good thing for me. Because it means that you and I have the opportunity to love people who look nothing like us. We get to know people who we would never talk to otherwise. I talk to baseball people all the time. What in the world? We get to worship in a way that might not be our preference. We get to serve in a body, listen, that would not make sense unless God was behind it. This does not make sense unless God is behind it. Gives me goosebumps. What a profound and exciting and God-honoring opportunity we have here at this church to live out our calling as the church. Because it's not about you, and it's not about me. It's about unity. And finally, the third implication of this new and glorious vision of the church is that our gifts were given to us for the church, and we're going to fly through this. I know I'm, I'm pushing it here. Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Verse 11. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's the goal, that we look like him. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. And listen to this. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see what Paul's saying here? The goal of, of, of the church isn't just unity for the sake of unity. Oh, wow, look how much unity we have. We're so diverse, but we're all one. The goal is unity for the sake of Christ's glory and fame. So when the world looks at our church, they see a full and mature representation of him, not us. That's the goal. And we accomplish that goal as each one of us work together and participate and do our part. I love how he puts it in verse 11. God gave us all leaders, pastors, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to do what? To equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's my job. My job is to help you live out your calling as one of God's people in God's people to do the work of the ministry. What I really want you to see today is that God has given us a lot. Hasn't he? So how are we using our time? How are we using our talent? How are we using our treasure? He's given us more than any generation and any country at any point in time in the history of the world. And that's nothing to feel guilty about. What are we doing with it? We have been blessed. 
We have more wealth and knowledge and technology and resources than any other time in the history of the world. And what Paul is saying here is that God has given us those things so that we might build up his body for his fame. So when we talk about giving here at Life Church, we're talking about a lot more than money. Money's just a part of it. We're talking about a mindset that Paul says is, is considering others' needs and others' desires as more important than our own. The kind of mindset that views our time, talents, and treasure as gifts that have been lavishly poured out on us so that we might invest them in the body of Christ. It's a mindset that doesn't look at others and think, what can I get out of them today? But rather, what can I, I give to them today? It moves us away from thinking about everyone in terms of how they're encouraging us, how they're pouring into us, how they're serving us, and how they're building us up, which is kind of how we approach church. Like, who's going to encourage me today? Who's going to talk to me today? Who's going to welcome me? And on and on the list goes. It, it moves us away from that. And now it starts getting us concerned about and caring about how we're doing that for other people. Most of the time, it has nothing to do with money. Some of you might be thinking, Ben, I don't have a lot of treasure. I don't have a lot of money. I don't even really know what my talents are. So how am I supposed to build up the body of Christ? What you need to understand today is that sometimes building up the body and, or giving to the body might just require you to smile and show kindness and encourage and pray and serve. Sometimes it just means listening instead of talking. That's a hard one. Just listening to people and asking questions that you genuinely want to hear the answer to. Not just so that you can jump in and like say your thing. Like how many of us, how many of us do that? I mean, I'll never forget one of my old mentors, a guy named Don Sandberg. He was so good at listening and building me up. We'd go out for lunch for like an hour, an hour and a half, and I'd leave the conversation with Don. And I'd just be like, wow, we just like talked about me the entire time we were together. And it, it's not because I was rambling. It's because he just kept asking question after question after question about my life because he genuinely cared about it. He was giving me his time, wasn't he? And his attention and his care. Let me ask you a question. How many times do you show up to church or to life group or wherever ready to invest your time and your attention and your care and your brothers and sisters simply by asking them about their lives? Not because you're like making small talk, but because you genuinely care. Not just so that you can tell them about yourselves like, hey, how was your week? How was your weekend? And as soon as they tell you, like, oh, man, let me tell you about my weekend. <laughs> I traveled this weekend. It was awesome. It is really easy to talk about ourselves and really hard to listen and care and encourage others. So you might not have a ton of money, and you might not even have a ton of talent, but you've got time, and you've got two ears. So invest that in this body. Not for your fame, but for God's. Guys, this, this church is the revelation of the manifold wisdom of God. 
And as a result, we are the supreme and primary witness to his glory in the world. That means this church is worthy of everything we've got. As Mark Dever once wrote, it is as we invest ourselves in our churches and work to bring biblical health to our churches that we ourselves grow. The whole church is built up and unified and a beautiful picture of God's grace is put on display to the lost world around us. So my prayer for you today is that your eyes would be open to the beauty and the glory of the church and that your heart would be full of awe and and love for her and that at the same time you would invest your life into her for the glory and fame and honor of our great King and our great Savior, Jesus.